Let's open God's Word this morning to 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, we will read the first 11 verses. And we do so in connection with Lord's Day 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism. 2 Peter chapter 1, let's read the first 11 verses, remembering that this is the inspired and therefore infallible Word of our God. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of, our Je- and of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We end our Scripture reading at that point. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 32. This is found in the back of our songbooks on page 19. Lord's Day 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Since then we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merits of ours. Why must we still do good works? Because Christ having redeemed and delivered us by His blood, also renews us by His Holy Spirit after His own image. That so we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for His blessings and that He may be praised by us. Also, that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. Cannot, then, cannot they then be saved who, continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives, are not converted to God? By no means. For the Holy Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like shall inherit the kingdom of God. Surely, good works are not necessary then. 
That is the charge that is often brought against the truth of God's Word that the Heidelberg Catechism has taught us thus far through the first 31 Lord's Days. For you see, the Catechism has taught us, especially in its second section, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. So that the language that we have in question 86 is really a summary of everything that the Catechism has just taught us. That we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merits of ours. That in a nutshell is what we've learned over the past several months. And it's against this very truth there comes the oft-repeated charge. Surely, good works are not necessary then. And that charge comes from two main places. On the one hand, it comes from the doctrinal enemies of the truth. Those who have a legalistic, works-righteousness perspective on salvation. Those who imagine that good works are necessary because they are a part of what makes me right with my God. And thus when they hear us say, no, 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 we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, their response to that is to say, well, then there's no more motivation to do good works. Surely good works are not necessary then. But that charge comes from another place as well. It comes from our own sinful flesh. For you see, our sinful flesh is bent on walking in sin. And therefore, it seeks to take this very truth of salvation by grace alone and twist it, distort it, and turn it into an excuse to go on sinning. You've already been saved. So you do not need to be fruitful. That sin will be forgiven anyway, so you might as well go ahead. If you're saved by grace alone, surely good works are not necessary then. That's the charge that comes from without and from within. It's that very charge that the Heidelberg Catechism answers in Lord's Day 32, which teaches us the necessity of good works. That's clear from the actual question being posed in question 86. The very end says, why must we still do good works? It assumes that we must, and it's asking the question, why are they necessary? The Catechism will teach us why. But in doing so, the Catechism teaches us more than the necessity of good works. Because when we really dive into this Lord's Day, into the Scripture passage that we have in front of us this morning, we see not just the necessity of good works, but the possibility of them. Really, the inevitability of them as well as our desire for them. And the reality that by God's grace, the believer does make a small beginning in a life of good works. So that what we are taught this morning is that believers must obey. They can obey. 
They shall obey. They want to. And they do. That is, we see the necessity of adding fruits to our faith. So that rather than being barren, we are fruitful. So let's consider Lord's Day 32 this morning using as our theme the necessity of adding fruits to our faith. First, we're going to look at the possibility and the inevitability of good works. Second, we will look at the command and desire for good works. And then third, at the results of good works. Good works are necessary because for the child of God, they are not only possible, really they are inevitable. And that is due to the very nature of our salvation. And that's what the catechism is teaching us when it answers the question, why must we still good, do good works? It says, because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by His blood, also renews us by His Holy Spirit after His own image. It's teaching us about the nature of our salvation. That's where we need to begin. By understanding our salvation. And then we'll come to see in the second half of this first point the implications concerning good works. The nature of our salvation is that it includes not only that we've been redeemed, but also that we're renewed. Now, praise be to God, it does include that we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God that the Gospel includes that Perfect satisfaction of Jesus Christ whereby He paid the debt for all of our sins by bearing the wrath of God against our sins. Praise be to God that the good news of the Gospel, our salvation includes His perfect obedience, His meritorious fulfillment of the law, which obedience is imputed to us by faith becomes the ground, the basis for God to declare to us not just that we're not guilty, but positively that we are righteous in Jesus Christ. And so there's a work that Jesus Christ has performed for us or on our behalf. And that is a part of the nature of our salvation. It's a part of the the good news of the Gospel. But the Gospel does not stop there. Because the Gospel includes not only that we've been redeemed, that work of Christ for us on our behalf, it includes that we're renewed. There's a work of Christ in us and upon us. And that's what the Catechism is teaching us when it says, because Christ having redeemed and delivered us by His blood also renews us by His Holy Spirit after His own image. There's a work of grace in us. And for the Catechism to teach this is for the Catechism to provide us a faithful summary of the Word of God. For we see this very truth in the passage that is in front of us this morning, namely 2 Peter chapter 1. It teaches us about that work of grace in us, including that we've been given the gift of faith. That comes out at the very outset. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It speaks of our faith, and it's not there talking about the body of what we believe, our doctrine, but it's talking about saving faith, that faculty whereby we believe. And it speaks of it as a like precious faith because our faith is just as valuable 
as anyone else's faith, including the apostles. That's who's in view here when it says, speaks of the like precious faith with us. With whom? Well, with Simon Peter and the other apostles. He's saying to us that you have not been given a low-grade, inferior faith relative to what the apostles have been given, but it's, it's the same faith. It's just as much a, a treasure that's been given to you on the basis of Christ's work so that we've, been, we've obtained this through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the key is, this is a work in us. It's been performed upon us. We've been given this gift of faith. What is more, this work of God in us and upon us includes that we've been renewed, that we are now, that we've been recreated in the image of our God. We say that in light of the language of verse 4. Verse 4 we read, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. We are partakers of the divine nature. Now certainly that does not mean that a part of our salvation is that we become divine. It's not saying that we partake of the the essence or the being of God for Scripture uses careful language. It speaks of His divine nature, not His being or His essence. Instead, what this is talking about is the fact that we have been recreated in the image of our God. That is, what was lost in Adam has been restored in Jesus Christ. For Scripture tells us plainly that Adam was made in the image of God after the likeness of God. That is, in Adam there was a creaturely reflection of God's own attributes so that we can say that Adam was a partaker of the divine nature. He was created in Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. But that was lost in the fall. So that fallen man lost that reflection of God's attributes. There's nothing in fallen man of the divine nature anymore. And that was true of us apart from God's grace. But a part of our salvation is that we're renewed in that image. We've been recreated in the image of God so that once again it can be said of us that we are partakers of this divine nature so that we've been given knowledge, righteousness, and holiness once again. Now again, this is a part of our salvation. Our salvation is not just that Christ redeemed us, that He performed a work of grace for us on our behalf. It includes His work of grace in us. And upon us, giving us faith and making us once again to be partakers of the divine nature. So when the Catechism teaches us about the nature of our salvation, we see it's a faithful summary of the Word of God. And all of this has important implications for the necessity of good works. For when we understand this truth concerning our salvation, we see that good works are not only possible, but really inevitable. First of all, they are possible by God's grace. Because of everything that we just said about the nature of our salvation, that includes this gift of faith. 
Because faith is the, because good works proceed from faith. Faith is the, the source of good works, as we'll learn in Lord's Day 20, in Lord's Day 33, question and answer 91. And understand that, well, emphatically, we are justified by faith alone apart from works. Nevertheless, that same faith goes on to work, to love. That same faith goes on to produce all manner of fruit. And that means as those who've been given this like precious faith, good works are a possibility for us. And that's also true because of that other part of this renewal, the fact that we've been made partakers once again of the divine nature. Certainly, apart from this work of grace, we were dead sinners. Apart from this work of grace, we were totally depraved. Period. Nothing more to add to that statement. So that we were incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil. But by God's grace, we've been renewed. We've been recreated in the image of our God. Made partakers of the divine nature so that we've been given once again the capacity to live a life of good works. Yes, I still have a totally depraved nature. There's a part of me that hates God, that hates the neighbor. But along with that, I have a new nature. A nature that, that loves God, that, that loves the neighbor so that for the child of God, there is once again the possibility of performing good works. And if you still have any doubts, well then hear the testimony of verse 3. Verse 3 says, According to His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. God by His Power has given us everything that we need to live a life of godliness. We do not need some additional knowledge, these, these insights. That's what Peter's especially addressing here in this epistle, that false notion that you need some special knowledge. But we've already been given everything that we stand in need of. And all of this then shows the possibility of good works for the believer. The believer can obey by God's grace. But it's more than that. It's not just that they're possible that the believer can obey. Because really the truth of Scripture is that good works are inevitable. The believer shall obey. And we say that in light of passages such as Ephesians 2, verse 10. Ephesians 2, verse 10 reads, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Notice that language. We've been recreated in Christ unto good works. That's a part of God's purpose in saving us that we bring forth these fruits. But then the verse gets stronger because it goes on to say, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. It's telling us that God has predetermined in all of eternity, not just that we'll do good works in a, a general way, but the very good works that we perform specifically, concretely. 
He ordained them from all eternity. And in time, He works in us powerfully by the Spirit so that we do walk in those very good works. And that means good works from a certain point of view are inevitable. The believer shall obey. Now, that does not mean they're automatic. It does not mean that the Spirit will produce them in us apart from our thinking and willing and doing of them. For Ephesians 2, verse 10 tells us we will walk in them. We will be conscious of living the life of good works. But yet, though they're not automatic, though the Spirit does not just sort of zap us into holiness, they are inevitable. Because the Spirit does work powerfully, irresistibly working in us the willing and the very doing of these good works. They're not just possible. They're inevitable. And because they're not just possible, but inevitable, they are therefore necessary. There's a must to good works. That's the language of the catechism. That's what the catechism is getting at here at the outset. Why must we still do good works? The answer is because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by His blood, also renews us by His Holy Spirit after His own image. Why must we do good works? Well, not because I have to save myself by them. Not because my good works maintain my salvation. It's not that I have to earn final salvation, my entrance into heaven by my good works. But the answer that the catechism gives is it's because it belongs to the very nature of salvation. This is a part of our salvation. He not only redeems, but He also renews. He gives me faith. He he renews me in His image. And He gives me the grace to live accordingly. And because all of that is true, there's a must to good works. They are necessary for the child of God. And it's when we understand all that that we can then make sense of the other passages passages of Scripture that make the strong statements they do about the necessity of a life of obedience. There are the negative passages that, that warn against continuing on impenitently in sin. For example, we have Galatians 5, verses 19-21. through Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, Envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It's saying if you continue on impenitently in these sins, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the catechism is drawing from such passages as this when it teaches what it does in question answer 87. Cannot they then be saved who continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives are not converted to God? By no means. For the Holy Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, 
covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's a strong statement. If you continue in these sins, there's no eternal life for you. We might wonder, how can Scripture state it so strongly? Not to that, there's not only these negative passages, but there, there's the positive flip side, such as Hebrews 12, verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. It's telling us that if a man's life is completely devoid of good works, he's not going to see the Lord in heaven. How do we understand this? Well, in light of what we've learned about the very nature of our salvation, that includes the fact that Christ has not only redeemed me, that work for me, but He also renews me. He performs a work of grace in me. So that when we come to these passages, we do not need to be troubled by them. We don't have to wonder, is Scripture all of a sudden contradicting itself? What am I supposed to do with this? Is it all of a sudden teaching me that I have to do good works in order to be saved, to get myself to heaven? No. Scripture is perfectly consistent with itself. And because of the very nature of our salvation, Christ not only redeems, He also renews. Therefore, good works are necessary. But now there's more that needs to be said. Not just that they're possible and inevitable. Not just that we must obey, we can obey, and we shall obey. Because Scripture also teaches us about the command and desire for good works. Scripture teaches us, first of all, of the command. Part of the necessity of good works is God commands them. He does so in His Word, specifically in His law. He tells us, this is how you are to live. He, he sets before us what a, a proper walk looks like. He does so in part, certainly, to help us see our sin. That's part of His purpose in giving us His law. So that when the law comes to us and says, do this and live, we cry out in humility, I can't. I need Jesus Christ. God gives us His law to bring us to our knees so that we say that. But that's not His only purpose in giving us His law. He also gives us His law because He tells us, as those whom I have redeemed, as those whom I have renewed, here is how I would have you to live as My people. I've redeemed you from that bondage, that slavery to sin. I've set you free. I've liberated you. And now here's how you are to serve Me, your new Lord, your new Master. And this then underlines the necessity of good works. The must of good works. We've seen the primary reason they're necessary. Because of the very nature of our salvation. But now we add to this, they're necessary because God commands this of us. But now in noting the fact that God commands us to live a life of good works, it's important that we link this back to that work of grace that He's performed within us. For the command does indeed relate to both the gift of faith as well as 
the fact that we are once again partakers of the divine nature. It relates to faith. Because in commanding us to obey, He's really telling us, add fruit to your faith. And we say that in light of the language in 2 Peter 1, verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. And then it continues. It starts with add to your faith. You've been given faith. A faith just as valuable, just as much a treasure as the faith given to the apostles. Now add to it. Supply something on top of it. And then it lists a it provides a list of virtues so that we're told to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. Now the idea of this list is not that this is a sequential pattern. That first I add this one, and then once I have that down, then I add the next one, and then I, I build from there. That's not the idea. But we're to have all these in view. These are virtues that we are to cultivate throughout our lives, all of which culminate in the last one, love, which is the fulfillment of the law. Add these to your faith. Because all of these flow from faith. Faith is put out, put at the various outset, and what we have. In the subsequent verses are the various fruits of faith. So that when we're told, add to your faith, we're really being told, be fruitful. Fruitful instead of barren, as we read about in verse 8. Verse 8, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've been given the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. By faith you have come to, to know Him as He set forth on the pages of Scripture. Now let that knowledge be fruitful. That's how it ought to be. Do not let it be said of us that it, it, it's unfruitful, this knowledge, that we're still barren in spite of it. So we see that the command... To serve God, to live a certain way, is tied to the very faith that He's given us. He's calling to live out of that faith. To add to our faith. To let our faith be fruitful. But the command to obey is also connected to this work of grace in us whereby He's renewed us in His image. We're partakers once again of His divine nature. For because we've been renewed, because we who were dead have been made alive again, we have this new life given to us, this new identity in Jesus Christ, the calling then becomes, well now be who you are. Live in harmony with your new identity. He, he's transformed you He's performed this work of grace in you. Now live out of that. You have a new identity. Live according to it. Be who you are in Christ Jesus. 
So that whether we have in view the, our faith or whether we have in view His work of making us partakers of His divine nature once again, we understand that the command to obey is tied to each of those. It's a command to live out of that renewing work of grace in us. So we must do good works. But by God's grace, we also want to. There's not only the command, we're also given, secondly, the desire, the motivation. And that motivation is gratitude for all that God has done for us. And that's what the Catechism is getting at when it teaches us what it does in the middle of answer 86. We've explained the first two lines and now the third line down, that so we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for His blessings and that He may be praised by us. The language of the Catechism is telling us our purpose in living a life of good works to express our thanksgiving to God for what He's done for us because of that work of Jesus Christ to redeem us, to set us free from bondage and slavery to sin by His precious blood because of that work of Jesus Christ to renew us by His Spirit. In response, the child of God says, in light of everything that He's done for me because it's all so wonderful because I didn't deserve any of it, I now want to serve this God. I want to live a life that's pleasing to Him. A life of service. So it's not just that we must obey. It's not just that we can obey. It's not just that we shall obey. But it's that we want to obey. There's a desire for good works. That means if and when good and works are lacking, that the problem is we've lost sight of the Gospel. And I say that in light of the language in verse 9. 2 Peter 1, verse 9, But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. If these virtues are lacking in you, if there's not this fruit being added to your faith, here's the problem Peter is telling us. You have forgotten that He hath purged you from from your old sins. You've lost sight of the Gospel. Is that you, child of God? Is that me? Have we forgotten what Christ has done for us? Is it the case that all of our focus is on what He has not given to us in this life? Or are we so wrapped up in the cares and the concerns of this life that we have no mental capacity left to think about Christ? Or is it the case that the trials, the afflictions that are part of life have so clouded our vision that we 
have lost sight of our Savior. Understand, it's when any of those are true that we become unfruitful. And we find that these virtues do become lacking in us. So what's the remedy? We need to remember the Gospel. We need to remember what Christ has done for us on our behalf as well as in us and upon us. For it's when we see the saving work of Jesus Christ and the wonder of the Gospel that I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, apart from any of my merits, apart from any of my good works. It's that truth that rekindles within us this this want, this desire to live a life of good works so that we say, By His grace, I want to serve this Savior on account of all that He's done for me out of gratitude, out of thankfulness for His saving work. I will seek to be faithful to Him. So that once again, we want to obey. And wonder of wonders, by God's grace, we do. Not all the time, but by God's grace, we do make a small beginning so that we see not just that we must obey, can obey, shall obey, want to obey, but that we do, by God's grace, obey. And when we do, there are blessed results. The results of good works come out here. At the very end of question answer 86. Also, that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. Two results. First, good works serve to strengthen our assurance. The Catechism teaches that when it says what it does. Also that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof so that one can know the genuineness of his faith by observing the fruits that his faith produces. And the Catechism is drawing from passages such as 2 Peter 1, verse 10, where we read, Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. It's teaching us that our good works have a confirming effect for our assurance of our calling and of our election. And now for the catechism to pick up on this and to teach this truth does not mean the catechism is now contradicting itself and what it taught us back in Lord's Day 7 when it explained for us what is faith. Well, it's both a certain knowledge and a hearty confidence. So that confidence or assurance is a part of faith. It's a part of the essence of faith. And so for the catechism now to speak of assurance and connection with good works is not therefore teaching us that I must do good works in order to gain assurance. It's not that my assurance is based on my good works in any way. 
But instead, the point is that they provide confirming evidence that serves to strengthen that assurance that is already there as a part of faith itself. So that the primary source of my assurance is Jesus Christ. When I'm doubting, when I'm struggling on account of a weak faith, I look to Jesus Christ. For when my eye is fixed on Jesus Christ, my faith in Him is strengthened. Thus, my assurance grows also. My confidence grows. We start there. At the same time, recognizing that God's Word itself does not rule out, really teaches us that good works play a confirming role because they point to that work of grace in us and upon us. Apart from that work of grace in us and upon us, good works are impossible. And therefore, when we observe fruit in our lives, tainted with sin to be sure, but nevertheless, there's fruit there, the only possible explanation is that the Spirit is at work. The Spirit has been at work to give me faith. The Spirit has been at work to renew me in the image of my God. So that the fruit is confirmation. That there's this work of grace being done in me. And that then strengthens. It provides confirmation to that assurance that we have by faith in Jesus Christ. So that first of all is one of the results of good works. And the second is that others might be gained to Christ. That's where the catechism in answer 86 ends. That by our godly conversation, others may be gained to Christ. This truth does not come out in 2 Peter, but it does come out if we back up to 1 Peter, for example. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of their wives. The scenario that Simon Peter has in view here is the scenario of a believing wife married to an unbelieving husband. And that wife is called to submit herself to, to, submit herself to her husband to live a godly life in the sphere of marriage. And a part of the encouragement for her is that God may well use that for the salvation of her husband that he may be gained to Christ. That's the idea of that last part of that verse. That they also may without the Word be won by the conversation that is the walk of the wives. Thus we see that the Catechism is once again simply summarizing Scripture when it tells us that one of the results of our good works is that our godly, by our godly conversation, others may be gained to Christ. For when we live according to that new identity, when we live out of that work of grace that's been performed in us, well, that speaks volumes to the power of our God. So that our lives become a visible testimony, a witness of what Jesus Christ has done not only for me, but what He has done in me. 
And that then becomes the occasion for others to ask, what makes you different? I've noticed that, that you don't live like the rest of us do. I notice your conduct is, is distinct. Tell me why. Tell me how. And we're given an open door to speak of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and in the wonders of His grace toward us. That's encouragement for us to live a life of good works, to let our light so shine before men. So child of God, are you still troubled by the charge? Surely good works are not necessary then. That's the charge. It's brought against the truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. My hope and prayer is that in light of everything that we've seen, that charge carries no weight with you anymore. Because the truth of Scripture is that good works are necessary because they're possible, inevitable, something we desire and something that is a reality for the child of God that is by God's grace we not only must do good works but we can we shall we want to and we do make a small beginning in a life of obedience may God continue to work in us by his grace so that we might add to our faith and be fruitful rather than barren. Amen. Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word, for the clarity that it provides us, and we pray for a rich measure of Thy grace. Make us zealous for good works. Work in us powerfully by Thy Spirit so that we add to our faith, so that we live according to that new identity that we have in Jesus Christ. Hear this prayer. For Christ's sake, Amen.